from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Lex Musta on July 16, 2018. Lex considers himself a human amity worker, and the projects he has been and is involved with testify to that moniker. In 2012, he co-authored Some Reflections on Baha'i Approaches to Social Change, which we discuss in the interview. He started a podcast called The Other Tradition, and he has a historical touring company called DC Time Travel Tours, which provides tourists with an opportunity to experience Washington, D.C. history not normally told. We talk about his podcast and touring company in the interview. I started the interview by asking Lex where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I uh, grew up in a city called Don Mills in Canada. And it was an incredibly diverse community. It provided me my first two best friends. One was from India and one was from Pakistan. But of course, they got along marvelously here. So I didn't have any idea of the acrimony at home. My neighborhood friends, like next door neighbors, were German, Japanese, and Korean, Derek, Ritchie, and Alan. So it was equally diverse at school as at home. And uh, it just seemed like a natural thing. So I felt very privileged to have that. But at the same time, against that backdrop, I had a very unique experience as a refugee, part of a refugee community. These are Estonians. We um, had escaped genocide from 1943. My great-grandfather Mert was one of the ones who were killed in that genocide. And so they had fled and arrived in Canada 28 years prior to my birth. This follows a very long period for Estonians, 700 years of enslavement, serfdom, and sharecropping. So it was a very community of long suffering, of which this displacement from Estonia to Canada was just the latest chapter. So I would say that my life had a real deep spiritual dependence that I kind of surmised from my parents and my grandparents. It kind of manifested itself in two distinct ways. My father's side um, my grandmother, Viva Musta, she had been born in Sarama just four years after freedom of movement had been granted Estonian. So four, just four years prior to her birth, my great-grandfather, Mikkel, was able to move away from the place where we had been enslaved for 300 years over to Sarama and uh, start out a, this new life, to which my grandmother was born into. But only nine years after that was World War One. So she had a very difficult life. But her religiousness had really manifested itself in a way of absolute uh, focus in her life on her chorale, church chorale music. And this had been brought to Estonia in the 1730s through the Monrovian church. Basically, my Viva's uh, great-grandfather's great-grandfather, Mutz, you know, was the first convert to that. And this chorale music, you know, was brought into my life is every time we attend the church, my grandmother's up there singing and my father would religiously attend the church to be the money collector 
and count the money and the finances for the church. So I had this sense of a deep love of the church, a deep sustaining joy in that singing. And then on the other hand, on my mother's side, I had quite a different experience of a spiritual upbringing because my grandfather, my grandmother, sorry, my mother's mother, Linda Bappel, she grew up in another aspect of the Monrovian church. And that was that they had provided us the, church, the Bible to read in our own language. So 100 years before the Luther, Martin Luther and them did it, the Monrovians were already doing this sort of action. In Estonia, we're very grateful because that Bible, that home education, the Estonian language education really uh, preserved the Estonian culture through a lot of turmoil. And so therefore, my great-grandfather, Jan Bappel, he took my family out of the church to stop paying pew rent and really study the Bible at home. And this freedom from the church permitted my grandmother, Linda, to tell my mom in the 1970s to go and start studying Vedanta as my mother was searching for more religion as she was raising three young boys. And this Vedanta really struck with her. And of course, the Baha'is of America are very familiar with Vedanta because we have a school called Green Acre, which was started by Sarah Farmer up in Maine. And there were two schools of study that were intensively attached to this location. The Baha'is in the early 1900s would go there for their retreats. And so would the Vedantists of America. Uh, between 1897 and 1912, four of their top teachers in the world were also constant uh, in constant attendance at Green Acre. And to this day, uh, Vedantists of America keep Green Acre as a sacred place, just as Baha'is do. And so it was interesting that my mother, uh, you know, came into this Vedanta study, bring that aspect into my life as well, this great religious diversity away from the Adamic religions of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and introducing me to Vedantist uh, study that resulted in all three brothers pursuing very free religious study. My older brother, Andres, he took a deep study of Rastafarianism and had introduced me to a deep appreciation of the African culture. And then my younger brother, Peter, embraced Chinese culture and, you know, end up learning Chinese. So, you know, this kind of open uh, appreciation of religion was a deep aspect of my upbringing together with cultural diversity. So those were the two large influences in my life prior to my introduction to the Baha'i faith. So what were the circumstances that connected you to the Baha'is? Canadians might remember better than your American audience, but back in 1985 when I was uh, 14 years old, there was a music video which came out and in the era when they used to have these TV shows, you know, top 10 music videos of the week. And unlike the traditional dance music which would be going on, all of a sudden came on the screen this gentleman, Doug Cameron, and he was singing about Mona Mahmoudnezad, who was 16 years old, when she was martyred as a Baha'i. And I was watching this music video, having no knowledge of the Baha'i faith. And I'm watching this, and I'm saying, my God, this young girl is being killed for teaching about oneness to these other children. And it struck me in a very powerful way, you know, growing up in Canada and having these Canadian musicians get together to record this uh, powerful video, is my heart opened up to experience the Baha'i faith from this video, 
two things happened. One, I was going to high school in Canada, and a Baha'i was placed into my class. It's quite an interesting thing that, you know, just after seeing this video, I'm now 15 years old, and I'm exposed to this Baha'i faith. And my first reaction to it, when my friend Roshan told me a little bit about the religion, was, is that some kind of cult? You know, is I just had a kind of a knee-jerk reaction to something I'd never heard of before. And so it's interesting, and it speaks to his maturity, that he changed tactics and stopped speaking about the faith directly. And he began teaching me to view the world through Baha'u'llah's eyes, the founder of the Baha'i faith. For instance, he would teach me about the equality of women and men. This struck me deeply, as in the Estonian language we have a word, demma. It is impossible to say the word he or she. So in my very cultural roots, I didn't even speak English until about age six, I knew this concept of equality in my very language, or the, of course, the uh, oneness of humanity, as I had described in growing up in Don Mills, it was no surprise to me that all humanity was one, or all religions were one, as I had even gone to a Jewish junior high school, where on Jewish holidays, I would be the only student in the classroom left to contemplate where are all these Jewish students going? What are they doing? One of my friends, Andrew Rosen, in uh, St. Andrew's Junior High School, it's interesting that he recently got nominated for an Oscar for his movie, The Breadwinner, which dealt with issues of female emancipation in the Islamic context, which, of course, to Baha'is is an issue which was first raised by Tahira 150 years prior in Iran. She's a female heroine of the Baha'i faith who challenged the rights of, of women to be emancipated in Iran a long time ago. But I kind of just felt all these Baha'i teachings coming in. Finally, in 1990, you know, after studying the faith for about four years in a very kind of discreet way, just studying the teachings, the principles, and, and becoming friends with um, my friend Roshan, I was attending a baseball game and he was going off to college in Montreal, and I was a year behind him staying in high school in Toronto. And so I was talking to him about this batting average uh, of George Bell, one of the Toronto baseball players, falling to a terrible uh, rate. And he threw the newspaper down that he was holding, and he said to me, I'm too busy trying to promote the oneness of humanity to worry about batting averages. You know, and I was kind of floored, you know, because it was kind of a transition moment when no longer am I... Um, high school child able to just kind of play with this Baha'i faith, learn it slowly, to realize that there's a profound thing going on in the world. I then began attending Baha'i conferences, Association for Baha'i Studies conferences, and I was in Montreal on June 17th, 1993, and I got to hear a talk by Roshan's father, Dr. Hossein Danesh, and I got to you know, meet Baha'is for the first time. And to me, it appeared just as a marvel. There were these 600 other people there to study the oneness of humanity, exchange ideas. It was a very warm atmosphere. I remember Dr. David Smith, who was a Baha'i counselor, which is a appointed position in the Baha'i faith to promote the Baha'i faith. And he was talking about marriage, and he was describing marriage as something to develop your soul, which was something really interesting. I really remember that talk as I continue to be challenged about the Baha'i faith and my understanding of what Baha'u'llah's teachings were. And so finally, 
two years after that, I was sitting on a park bench in Place de la Porte Malio in uh, Paris, very close to the Arc de Triomphe and close to the Baha'i Center in Paris. And I was speaking with Roshan. He had come to visit me in Paris where I was studying. I asked him, I said, why do people become Baha'i when Baha'u'llah accepts all religions? And he said, well, you, you don't have to become Baha'i. Nothing requires you to become Baha'i. But think about it. How many people will come to know of the Baha'i faith through your declaration? And they can also share these, enjoy these teachings that you love so much. And so that struck me as a very wise thing to do, a simple act of declaration. I was already enjoying Baha'u'llah's teachings in my life, but now I could also have this aspect of sharing it with others, which that introduced. Uh, and so in Nauru's of 1995, I declared my faith in Baha'u'llah have truly enjoyed and treasured this faith in my life. So you mentioned Nauru's. Why don't you just explain to folks what Nauru's is? Sure. Globally, the new year of every calendar basically began in springtime. Like, for instance, people are very familiar with the Gregorian calendar. Basically, everything started in March. That's when war recommenced. Uh, they basically stopped war in the winter and started it again in March. And that's why... Mars is the God's war, but you have this basic notion that springtime, you know, when people see everything coming to life, this was the beginning of the year. So if you actually study all calendars of all cultures, they all start in the springtime. This December movement of the calendar back to December was a much more recent phenomenon, which dealt, you know, came from Northern Europe when they brought the Danish and the Viking and the Norway and the Swedes into the Christian faith and moved the birth of Christ to Christmas, which was a well-known holiday, well, Yuletide kind of greetings, all that was already established in Northern Europe. So that calendar moved back at that time globally. So this spring, no new year, is something very ancient in humanity. And in the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, uh, actually the Bab, his forefathers, two stations in the Baha'i in quick succession and 19 years apart, the Bab and then Baha'u'llah, both of whose birthdays, the 200th anniversary of their births, we're celebrating right now as a global Baha'i community. But the Bab had established this new year, which started with Nauru's as back as the new year, which is something very common amongst the Kurds, amongst people in Iran. They all still celebrate a new year in the springtime. So that notion of just recombining humanity's kind of innate feelings of uh, rebirth and renewal with a new year is a really a wonderful thing because it's always nice to start things on Nauru's that you want to, you know, recommence. Actually, you deciding to become a Baha'i is renewal in itself coinciding with Nauru's. Yes, that's a great thought because for me, one of the things that Baha'u'llah struck me with, he, is he suggests the notion of a loving creator who would not abandon any people. So therefore, this notion of prophets or manifestations of God, it just logically makes sense that he appears to all people. He wouldn't only appear to one tribe in Israel, but he would appear to all tribes. So when you go back to Estonian history, for instance, it has renewed my interest, study of my own country, what manifestations of God have come to my little tiny country of Estonia? And there's a great story on Sarema 
of this man, uh, Big Tom, meaning Tall Tom. And when you hear the stories about him as a child, you kind of think these are childish stories. But when you look at them through the perspective of a manifestation of God, they make a lot more sense. For instance, he walked from Sodom to Huma. These are two islands that are six miles apart. And of course, they call him tall, but no man can walk in a single step six miles. But it makes a lot more sense if you think about him uniting these two people so closely that it's just like walking from one island to the next on your feet. So that makes more sense from his aspect of unity. Or he talked about, he taught to chase the devils away. Well, rather than him running around chasing men around, it makes much more sense that he was teaching us to purify our lives and, and bring our lives into account with God's teachings such that sin is removed from our lives, are figuratively chased away. So in this way, it was a real renewal for me of all the religions. In fact, I would then look deeper into my mother's Vedanta, and I would marvel how Sarah Farmer is one of the few people who've seen that the great truth in the Vedantic teachings and in the Baha'i teachings. Is, you know, so there's people like that who are able to see the truth, the commonality to God's plan for humanity. And it really fills you with renewal because as an Estonian growing up in Canada, I was literally being trained to liberate my country from Russian occupation as a militia force. So all the Boy Scouts who were Estonian in Canada, we could all shoot a gun because our scout teachers were literally military men who were raising us and preparing us to liberate our homeland from Soviet occupation, whereas Baha'u'llah transformed that for me. And I had to really start to view Russians as friends. And it's so nice when you go to Estonia in the Baha'i Center, you have the Estonian descent Estonians and the Russian descent Estonians coming together in Estonia, where the two groups are actively working to find the common ground and to unite and not just live in a segregated tolerance side by side. So it really is for me a, a, a flowering, a renewal. So I'm speaking with Lex Musta, author, podcaster, and founder of DC Time Travel Tours. So let's first talk about your authorship. In 2012, you collaborated with Roshan Dinesh with the work, Some Reflections on Baha'i Approaches to Social Change. Why don't you tell us about that? Thank you for asking about that. This was a real work of, of love. As you can imagine, Roshan and I had been best of friends for 20 years by this point, and we've been studying this faith together. And I had become deeply concerned in the work of race relations, as I had described in Estonia. My family had suffered genocide. Of course, the world witnessed the horror in Rwanda, that genocide is still with us. And so this became a very important topic to me, as Baha'u'llah calls us to view the oneness of humanity as the very pivot of our faith. What is our voice to add to the current search for social justice? We decided to share some reflections on this approach that really centered upon the most holy book of the Baha'i called the Kitabi Akhtas, which is just means the words most holy book to help signify its primacy 
amongst Baha'u'llah's voluminous revelation. And in paragraph 160, if any of your listeners can ever get a hand on that book, it's free on the internet. In paragraph 160, it reads, In truth, the hearts of men are edified through the power of the tongue. Even as houses and cities are built up by the hand and other means, we have assigned to every end a means for its accomplishment. Avail yourself thereof. And what's so significant about this and what's so meaningful and kind of drove us to write this paper is that many people have this view that ends justify the means, but it's extra challenging when you have to approach a topic like developing the oneness of humanity with means that are just as building up of justice and unity as the end to which you're pursuing. So, for instance, uh, you know, when you think about this topic, you're like, okay, so how are we going to, you know, average Baha'is all over the world? How are they going to make a contribution in their social discourse? And so when we studied the Baha'i teachings on social change, what came apparent to me and Rashan, which we shared in the paper, was that we really have an ethos of changing things in people's hearts. So if you're going to have a means to change people towards unity, we need a means that builds unity as we're doing it instead of conflict. And so if you talk to many Baha'is, they often quote to you that we avoid partisan politics. But what do we do? And so this quote from the Ketepi Akdas, the most holy book about using the power of the tongue speaks to this issue. That is the uniting means. For instance, right now, Baha'is around the world are in the month of words, Kalimat. Uh, this speaks to that Baha'u'llah and the Bab have raised the meaning of word to a whole month, speaking how important it is that we influence people through what we call social meanings, meaning that once you believe something new, then it has a whole different approach to you because then you're no longer being forced to do it because the laws have changed. For instance, the laws against interracial marriage in the United States have changed federally since 1971, but at the moment, the number of people of European descent marrying people of African descent is only 0.4% of marriages. So <laughs> that's an incredibly tiny percentage showing that it's not enough just to change laws, although that's critically important, where Baha'is really put their efforts, and, and I believe have done so throughout history, is in the area of social change, in, in terms of changing social meanings, such that once we have your belief changed, to believe in the oneness of humanity, for instance, instead of otherness, you know, oneness, you know, when you study American race relations history, of course, so much effort was spent to show that we're... Uh, totally different they build build this ideology of races that people actually believe there's different races out there uh, which is completely just an ideology there's franz boas conclusively you know showed that but the fact that, that we had to have that debate and that the debate still rages that many people still believe in this false ideology of race just shows you how powerful social meanings are so as we switch people to this notion of oneness we should do so in the notion of social meaning such that people will truly believe it and embrace it. And so therefore, 
the paper uh, tends to go into some depth about how you might approach some different social meanings that are divisive in your community, and you might, as any Baha'i, partake in the social discussion with an important contribution to make by focusing on trying to replace those divisive meanings with loving, uniting, just, and kind meanings to replace those. So I'm speaking with Lex Musta, author, podcaster, and founder of DC Time Travel Tours. So Lex, let's talk next about your podcast. Uh, it's called The Other Tradition, is it? That's right. It's The Other Tradition podcast, and I'm doing it jointly with Dr. Richard Thomas, who is Professor Emeritus from the University of Michigan, Michigan State University. And he's been on your podcast before. I know you've, you've met him before. Right. I just interviewed him recently, yeah. 30 years ago, he was teaching a class on slavery in the United States, and he would notice that his students wouldn't leave empowered. They would leave somewhat, you know, disgusted and, and, and depressed. So he instead changed the way he taught the course to focus upon another racial tradition in America besides the tradition of enslavement and violence and piracy. You know, he's focusing upon this tradition of interracial and multiracial cooperation. And he found that his students then would leave empowered. They would have some heroes to frame a reference. They would have some notions that America has a continuous history of interracial cooperation everywhere where we have had an advance in race relations. It has come about because of close interracial and multiracial cooperation. And so it seemed to me a great opportunity to partner with him to get this message out to many more people than who might currently know it, as the term is not widely known in America, and still the majority of kind of thought and discussion out in America is on things like trying to fight against all the injustice and all the violence that's present in our society, the inequity. I thought it would be important to kind of provide another vision of America, one that's very interracial and multiracial and very uh, achievement-oriented. Back in 1912 at Howard University in Washington, D.C., the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Abdu'l-Baha, traveled to America, and at his most southernmost point of his trip in Washington, D.C., he spoke at one university, and that was Howard. And this historically black college university at which he spoke, he challenged the audience to kind of live this other tradition. And he said, you know, you should love the other, you should honor the other, and you should work for mutual advancement. So I really felt that that was a real guidepost to transforming a person's soul, that even if you knew nothing about uh, race relations, if you began to struggle to find someone to honor you would quickly come, you know, from just words on your mouth of the oneness of humanity, you would quickly come to true admiration and appreciation of the challenges that many First Nations face in America, as well as people of African descent going through this process. So the other tradition, I thought it's important to get the message out so people start restudying their history from an interracial, multiracial standpoint. One time I was thinking of how to renovate the Lewis Gregory Baha'i Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. This wonderful Baha'i Museum there 
right now has very much a Baha'i focus. It speaks about kind of exhibits that only a Baha'i would understand. And so I asked, I gathered together a couple of the leading curators of museums in Charleston, and I asked them, what can the Baha'is contribute here? And they said, please tell the interracial story of Charleston, South Carolina. That's what nobody else has a real mandate to do. And the Baha'is are so comfortable at doing that, even though I'm no longer in Charleston, trying to get that museum going, this podcast can reach America. And Dr. Thomas has agreed to do six of the podcasts with me. So we're looking forward to doing them this coming uh, fall. When those are produced, how would people find it? Yeah, so the podcast is already up. I've already done a few to gain uh, familiarity with the podcasting method and enjoyed putting up some and I've recorded a few others I'm still producing. But you just go to theothertradition.blogspot.com or on your, if you have an iPhone, you can look up Other Tradition in the podcast or the Twitter feed is also Other Tradition. So if you Google Other Tradition, you'll see the result come up so you can enjoy the podcast. So I'm speaking with Lex Musta, author, podcaster, and founder of DC Time Travel Tours, and we were just talking about the podcast that he's developing called The Other Tradition. So Lex, why don't you tell us about the DC Time Travel Tours that you founded? As I was exploring race relations in America, many parts of it had been written out of popular history, namely the history of the First Nations of America and the history of Americans of African descent. So here in the nation's capital, uh, which is one of the number one tourist destinations in America, I thought it would be very useful to attempt to approach racial reconciliation with tourists as they would come through the city, I thought I could take them to visit the First Nations. There's nine First Nations within a stone's throw of the capital that they could visit. There's a big debate here in this capital city as uh, this horribly racist name is used to describe their NFL franchise. And people talk about all kinds of pride for this uh, racist name, yet they have never bothered to visit and befriend and learn the languages of and interact with the many First Nations right around here, right around the capital. And so I thought, you know, this is something I can really do that, that would really give me a fresh chance to bring my discourse on race relations to a new audience and to try to engage people, you know, in a very thoughtful way and provide an alternative to the you know, traditional kind of tours of Mount Vernon and the White House that people might do when they visit D.C. And similarly, I realized that the birthplaces of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass were also just a stone's throw away from the Capitol. So I thought, let me take you to visit the lives of these great American heroes and realize how close they are to you, how accessible they are, and, and really experience their lives so that you can also you know, undergo that same kind of transformation of understanding and appreciation of uh, their heroism and how to honor them, and also, you know, working for the development of these tourist sites so that this story can get told uh, better and better in the future years. So I've kind of um, enjoyed trying to start up a tourism business, which could try to find a, a new expression for my attempts to spread this Baha'i basic teaching about the oneness 
of humanity and to and to spread it uh, in a new way. So, Lex, where can people find DC Time Travel Tours so they could take advantage of that? It's at dctimetraveltours.com. That's dctimetraveltours.com. And the Twitter handle is TTTDC. And if you Google DC Time Travel Tours, you'll find it as well. There's a time travel tours company in Ireland who thought up that idea first. But the notion is that on this tour, you actually experience history. My wife, Tori, portrays Harriet Tubman on the one tour. And um, my daughter portrays one of her nieces who she liberated from the Eastern Shore, Maryland. Lex, thanks so much for sharing your work and your podcast and your Endeavor DC time travel tours, and I hope people will sign up <laughs> to take advantage of it when they're in DC. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lex Musta, author, podcaster, and founder of DC time travel tours. You can find links to his podcast and touring company on my post for this interview on abahaiperspective.com. You can also find other interviews at abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel a Baha'i Perspective. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
become so confusing. It's hard to tell right from wrong. Seems like anything goes, and everything goes. But where do you go to find answers clear and strong? My heart has discovered something. Much better than what's been seen. So leave the past behind and seek until you find that new light that is beckoning. Thank、you
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.